The time is uh, 14 minutes past 8 o'clock. We're flying by the seat of our pants here on Radio Glory. Welcome along to round two. Pleasure to have you with me. Leonard Skinner first up in that set with Working for MCA. You're on the breakfast program rolling through till 9 o'clock. Well, I've got a guest in the studio and... Um, it's going to be awesome, I think. We're just going to fly by the seat of our pants. But my next guest, it would be, well, look, it, put it this way. If, if I were to read a dossier of our next guest, it would, it would go something like this. And it would be fair to say that despite only being 40-something years of age, he's already a bona fide Kimberley character. He grew up on Carlton Hill and Ivanhoe stations, was one of only two white boys in his primary school, the other one being his brother, like everyone in his family, he learnt to fly a plane before he could drive, but was driving by the age of 14. Was mustering cattle at an age where most kids were outside playing footy. He came to the big smoke of Broom when he was 18 and became a pearl diver. By the time he was in his 30s, he was working all over the world in what can be described as uh, one of the hairiest of jobs as a deep water saturation diver. He's been involved in the pointy end of diving, from recovering a downed 747 in the South China Sea to rescuing a water-landed cargo plane in crocodile-infested delta of the African wilderness, and ultimately an accident seven years ago that took him to the edge, nearly took his life at 80 metres of depth whilst on a job off the Pilbara coast. Amongst his list of boxes ticked, he's had an AK-47 assault rifle held to his head, has appeared on the cover of a Slim Dusty album, and has jumped from the highest cliffs of the Norwegian wilderness wearing nothing but a tiny parachute and a pair of pink budgie smugglers. His Kimberly Blue Blood name is Richard Bradley, but his friends call him Dingo. Good morning, Dingo. Morning, Will. That's an introduction. Did you, uh, did you like that intro? <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to take it all in. <laughs> How'd you get the name? Dingo. Uh, it, was, um, it was a name given to me by a girlfriend early on in, the, in my walkabout. <laughs> Seemed to have stuck. And Say no more. Me, followed me into the, into the diving game. So look, let's start uh, at the beginning. You grew up in the bush. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, well, Carlton Hill, Ivanhoe, Ord River. It was, um, I suppose, with the with the benefit of hindsight, it was a really privileged existence. Um, especially when you look at bringing up kids today. Um, I had a, just a lot of freedom, a lot of freedom um, to well, and also responsibility, I suppose. But um, yeah, growing up on the Ord River with with not not a whole lot of rules was was a privilege really and um the the people and the friends and the and the the action of 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 being in that part of the world at that time was um yeah i think it was pretty formative for me yeah uh, sure but now let's 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 leap forward because you mentioned friends and i want to find out how you uh how you came to hang with the big guy who of course really is um aristocracy especially in as far as country music goes how did you end up on the cover of slim dusty's album oh that was that was an interesting turn of events and sort of in the early 90s um carlton hill and ivanhoe was a bit of a revolving door for interesting characters for one reason or another and at one point slim who was on the road in his van pulled up and camped at uh carlton for the oh, best part of a couple of months and 
Um, at that time, I was ball running, and um, he often used to tag along um, with his wife. And uh, at one stage, he was saying to me, "Oh, look, I'm I'm going to be writing an album, and uh, you know, if you wouldn't mind, we, while we're doing a ball run, we might end up doing some photos." And one thing led to another, and I didn't. They took some photos of us moving cattle and in a bull catcher. And I, when you say I'm on the cover, I, I, you know you have to look pretty um, hard. You know, yeah, I've I've kind of I've bent it a little bit. Still, you know, you feature on there. You, there's a photo of you and you beating up old Akubra, and uh, it kind of stands out. And it's an awesome one to put in your folio. Is he still around? He is. Oh no, he's no, gone, isn't he? Past. He's moved he, on, unfortunately. And they, they didn't they have uh, a state funeral for him? I think state, and he got a, he got a lot of honours. And um, yeah, he was he was uh, quite a character. Um, liked his red beef, liked his meat, um, and loved to just uh, you know rock up down at the uh, down at the at the mess and play a song for us. I know that, like, even in, in his declining years, he still drove an old 60s Fairlane when he could have had, you know, the latest Commodore. I believe so. I never saw his rig. Bushy to the very end. Uh, all right, so you, you grew up on a station. You're flying a plane for the old man. He was the flying vet, literally, wasn't he? Yeah, Dad Dad uh, arrived up in the Kimberley, and he, yeah, he started veterinary practice, and basically, yeah, I was sort of his autopilot for during my younger years, um, little old Cessna 172. And he'd just give me a few coordinates and say, hold that for the next two hours. He'd go off to sleep. And, um, yeah, I, I learned pretty early how to, how to feel it. And so ultimately you leave country life, leave station life, make your way into the big smoke and uh, became one of the many who ended up in the deeps of Roebuck Bay, yeah? Yeah, uh, fresh out of school, um, ended up with Pass Paley, learnt the love for the sea and uh, that was sort of, I, I found myself... Uh, pretty chuffed that I'd found a passion early on so um, that was the beginning of yeah the next 20 years really the next 20 years as a professional diver yeah commercial diving sort of took me up up from the pearling industry I I got into um, sort of inshore and civil stuff and uh, also got real bad walkabout so I ended up really traveling heaps and uh, yeah one thing led to another and before you know it you're in deeper and darker and dirtier water now, I wanted to, to touch on this because when I first met you, which was, I don't know, many years ago now, but there was a, an, a, a madness in your eye, which um, which very akin to kind of like Jack Nicholson from One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest. And, you know, I initially just put that down to Kimberly inbreeding, but uh, <laughs> I later figured it out. It was because your, your work at that time, uh, involved basically living on the bottom of the ocean in incredible depths uh, and in what can only be described as an incredibly high-risk job. And then, of course, when that job finishes, for when you've got your week off or two weeks off, then am I right in assuming there was there was a need to fill that that void? Uh, you couldn't just sit still in the lounge room. You had to go and throw yourself off the Iger in a pair of pink budgie smugglers or the equivalent. I, I'm going to expand on that so people don't get the wrong idea. But basically, base jumping, uh, extreme sports, putting yourself on the edge. Yeah, I've always, I think, you know, some people are born with a hunger to test various limits. And I think I was one of those blokes that was meant to live in the uh, in the physical realms. And for sure, diving was one aspect of it, but the 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 air has always been another aspect. And I, I um, definitely, I, I not long after I got into diving, I got into skydiving, and then before I know it, I was climbing up buildings and get, getting off cliffs in with parachute systems. And uh, yeah, so often uh, time in the mountains and 
you know, climbing and jumping off fixed objects with parachutes was a good way to redress the imbalance of living inside <laughs> a steel can full of helium. So it seemed to, you know, it, it worked pretty well for a few years. I reckon it would be um, safe to say you'd be the only guest, I think, I could be wrong, the only guest to come on uh, this show who is, what is the right word for those people like yourself who wear the possum suits and jump off the cliffs? Uh, base jumper, wingsuit base jumper. Uh, general uh, extremist, adrenaline junkie. There's a few names, right? <laughs> but that's. I remember you saying that um, in the in that game, the people who pass on the knowledge of how you do it, generally the life expectancy is is fairly short, short lived, if you're really into it. Yeah, there's a zone where, um, yeah, well, we, we we talk about going in, but yeah. I, uh, there's a zone where a lot of your mentors end up disappearing. I have a. It's going more, in the term. The, yeah, it is the term. Um, I'm glad I didn't go in yet. Um, but yeah, I've, I've I've had a lot of mates go in, and that's sort of that's par for the course. And when you choose that sort of that sort of pursuit, that sort of avenue. For those for those of you who don't really know what we're talking about, and we're talking about. Um, uh, well, you can see there's lots of social media footage and YouTube footage of these guys flying through these canyons in Switzerland and Norway, literally looking like sugar gliders is, is pretty much an accurate description of what you guys look like. Can you describe how that, how that works? How do, how do we stay afloat? Uh, essentially, um, it's they're all what we call terminal velocity jumps. So they're they're, they're greater jumps, and so initially you, they, they call it flying, but you you jump off a, an object with a, at least a couple of hundred feet of vertical, and uh, the 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 increase in um, downward velocity forces causes lift, and obviously if your surface surface area increases through a wingsuit, then the lift can be transitioned into forward movement and. One thing leads to another, and then all of a sudden you are actually tracking along quite, you know, your glide ratio increases. And so it it looks, it, it's it's way better than it looks, actually, uh, from my point of view. Can you actually go up while, while you're yes. coming down? You can actually go yes, up. So you are literally flying. Suit technology in the last five or six years is such that you can actually get amazing lift. And we're not far away, I'd say, in the next five years of probably coming up with a suit where possibly a parachute is unnecessary. Really? Yeah. So you just would land like a plane? Yeah, you'd be able to flare and then sort of hard land initially, and then as the flaring and the capabilities got better, you'd, we'll see. It's 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 quite an interesting. I know, I've seen some of this, the footage of the the speeds that these guys fly. What what sort of in kilometres an hour? What sort of speed uh, are they reaching? Forward movement, sort of between 180 and 250, depending. Like you control your dive rates, and you, and then obviously 180 kilometres an and hour. And then as you flare, obviously it's 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 dynamic. There's there's vertical movement and forward movement, so it's it's very much a dynamic scope. And the faster you fly, the the more uh, the more input you have and the more control. So the stuff you're seeing, with especially with relativity to that that ground sort of rush, that's all. That's very very fast. That's sort of in excess of 200. So there's got to be. You've obviously got to know what you're doing because if you go too slow, you're going to stall, aren't you? Correct. Uh, unsafe wingsuit flying is slow flying. Uh, safe wingsuit flying is very fast, and it's quite it's counterintuitive, especially when you're getting into it, to think that you should be just sort of flying flat. The the best flying happens steep, and it uh, you've really got to be quite aggressive and into it. So the, uh, some of the footage I'm referring to is when you, you really get an idea of the speed these guys are going at when when they're flying over people standing on the side of roads, for instance, or 
parked cars, and they literally appear like F one elevens. Just yeah, it's, a, it's good zooming relativity. Past. It's good relativity. Have you been through some of those canyons in in those countries? Uh, I've done a bit in in Norway and uh, in the Alps, but um, I I exited out of the game just as I was starting to gain competencies due to various events but um i'm I'm glad i exited when i did yeah yeah we're going to talk a bit more about that in a minute but we should take in a tune while we're here um we were looking for slim but sadly i couldn't find any slim on our massive library but what we did find was a tribute to slim by a good friend of both of us and we're going to take that in right now stumpy's jump up from the album provenance you know the one a little bit of shelf promotion, 33 minutes past 8 o'clock here on Radio Glory. My very special guest in the in the studio is Dingo Bradley, uh, cattle musterer, pearl diver, bass jumper extraordinaire. And we're having a chat about life and uh, and all other things pertaining to it. Now we were we were just talking about flying through the uh, through the, the ravines and cliffs of Norway in a possum suit, as we do. Most of us don't do, but every now and again, there are those sorts of people who do. And for you, I guess it was um, working in an industry that was so extreme. I mean, let's face it, it is pretty extreme. You're diving in incredible depths, living in a diving bell with like two other blokes. And then when you uh, when you get R and R, hardly likely to sit in front of the television after spending two weeks on edge, which is hence why you're jumping off cliffs in possum suits. Would that be a fair summary? Yes, mate. I don't do TV. Uh, <laughs> Bubblegum for the brain, that one. Um, yeah, you just there's there's things you need to do to vent off pent up uh, requirements. And uh, back in those days, it was it was climbing up cliffs and taking the fast way down. Yeah, sure. Now. Working at those depths, what's what sort of just ex- explain to the listeners what's involved a- a in saturation diving? Go from one end to the other. Like, what depths are we talking? Well, generally, uh, well, saturation diving is um, it's it's a method of diving that is involved in at greater depths where air is is narcotic and and actually fatal at depths. So essentially, between sort of thirty meters all the way through to three hundred, uh, com- commercial diving requirements. Uh, they, you need workers at that depth, so uh, they remove the nitrogen from from the breathing air and they substitute it with helium, and then they've created an environment where um, the divers can live inside these chambers um, with breathing helium and oxygen. Their blood becomes saturated, hence the saturation, um, and then once they're saturated and they're stored there, they can stay down well in a Western country for 28 days and the rest of the world um, indefinitely, really, and you. As a result of that, the diver can lock out under pressure from the system in a diving bell and uh, spend up sort of six to anywhere up to as long as you can stand uh, subsea. Uh, generally, uh, again, a regulated country, seven, eight hours in the water, but uh, Gulf of Mexico and some of the other more far out locations, I've been in the water for up to 15 hours at, at times. But you're in the water, but at the end of the working day, you're you're still in the bell, aren't you? The bell comes up to the surface, is that right? But well, you're still at pressure. Yeah, you, you're you're at pressure. One man's in the bell; he's the bellman, and then one bloke or two blokes, if you're in a team of three, two blokes are in the water working. So your your bell is your safe haven. Um, going to the surface is never an option um, because of your saturation. You're actually a a long decompression away from the surface. So um, your only hope in an emergency situation is is the bell, and that is at the end of your umbilical. So your, your umbilicals sort of go from sort of 50 up out to 60 or 70 metres. So that's always, um, yeah, your bell is, is your emergency station. 
So at the end of the day, the bell, does everyone climb back into the bell, the bell comes up? Yeah, correct. Uh, basically, to uh, a chamber. Yeah, you get you get notice. Diver one goes back into the bell, takes all his gear off. The bellman stows his racks his hose. Um, then diver two will come back, get in, racks his hose. Then you'll close the hatch on the bell, and you'll you'll pressurise the bell so it, it overpressurises. So you've got a seal, and then that the the vessel will bring the bell up and lock it back on the system. What what sort of depths are we talking? Um, well, I've I've worked everywhere from sort of. In the puddles, all the way to um, deepest dive I've done is 247 metres. Um, but generally, vast majority of most working saturation dives happen between sort of 80 and 200 metres. Um, 247 metres. What do you see down there? Um, whatever your hat light can expose. And again, that depends. The vast majority of my diving has been in black water, so you really don't see a lot. But um, yeah, clear water days, you do see... Well, there's life a little bit. Uh, the deepest one I did was in the mouth of the Congo River, and it was muddy, but there was life down there. There was a fair bit of life. It was um, the water was very clear and quite cold. Oh, really? Uh, so underneath it's clear. Yeah, Is that right? uh, yeah. Down down below, so um, the surface uh, the surface of the Congo is obviously muddy with massive sort of freshwater outpouring. But yeah, once you get down onto the the seabed, depending on what your depth, but there's very very cold, clear Atlantic water. So that was. Um, yeah, it's it's all pretty strange actually as you're descending and you're seeing all this mud and then you come out in the in the black clear. But without a hat light, you don't see anything past sort of eighty or ninety meters. Because and when you say life, what sort of life are we seeing down there? Ah, uh, fish, pelagic sharks, um, not not you know, uh, okies, eels. Um, at at two forty, there's not a great deal of life. The vast majority of life you'll see is in the sort of first hundred meters. Um, yeah, at two forty is. There's uh, in in Africa, there, and again, there's there's a pretty heavy fishing toll over there. So, not a you know just fish and the usual sort of things you'd expect. Not not those sort of deep deep dark creatures because 240 meters ain't anywhere near the deepest point in the ocean. Sure, sure. Okay, well, I think I think they probably get a bit of a picture. Yeah. So now we we've gone from extreme uh, adrenaline junkie to basically the other end of the coin because you nearly met the wall. So let's go back seven years ago. You're working off the northwest shelf. You're at depth. And your end, you saw the green light basically, and the other side. So run through what happened and how it came to be that now you're settled in Margaret River with three kids and a wife. Yeah, you know, you know life life deals you some aces sometimes. And uh, I had an incident. Um, I was involved in an incident on the northwest shelf, as I said, and I was using I was in sort of eighty odd meters of water uh, using a high pressure water gun, and um, a, a part on the gun failed, and I took a I took sort of 16,000 psi salt water in, in luckily in, in my left forearm. Um, had it been a few inches to the uh, to the right, I would have taken it in the lung, and then it would have been game over. But yeah, we were in saturation. We were on extended umbilicals. It was a sort of nine and a half minute adrenaline rush of the highest order, um, and I I got lucky and made it back. Uh, and then there was an emergency decompression, which was a couple of days, and then a medevac, and then hospital. It was very complicated. Even after I surfaced a couple of days after the incident, it was still such a complex injury that um, there was a lot of unknowns. But uh, thanks to uh, you know all the players, from the supervisors to the, the medevac team to my surgeon, um, things turned out pretty well. But obviously an, an event like that makes you ask a few questions. And, and obviously as an event like that, uh, thanks to that event, I... I 
I got lucky and met my wife. <laughs> you play it down, but I, I've seen the actual footage of it, and it's a pretty. It's like it makes a Hollywood feature um, dull in comparison to actually what happened. And then there was that. St- there was a. I guess that time where you you've been hit by the part, and you've got to make your way back to the bell, which is as you said, that's the safety house, and that must have been a fairly intense. How, how long did it take you to to go from the injury site? to the bell and what was running through your head you know moments like that the old me lived for them and I you know you never know what comes up but it took me about nine minutes on reflection there was no thought it was pure survival instinct um autonomic overtake um and it was a it was quite a complex um to get back to the bell due to the nature of the umbilicals through extended uh hoops and stuff and and uh it was it was just all rush um there was no thought about how it was happening. I did it without fins. I was just pulling myself with one arm up my hose and um, just very lucky that nothing got tangled and Bellman had everything ready and the, the boys I was with were top-notch and, um, yeah, the, the universe <laughs> provided. So that was, that was kind of... You did, you've done a couple of dives since then, but that was, that was the, the ceiling then, yeah? That was when you sort of reassessed life. Yeah, I think I saw the tunnel there and I, I, I realised after that I'd, I'd better make some life changes, otherwise I was going in regardless. So, um, yeah, I just began putting into play the changes. I, not long after that event, obviously, my, my, my one life stand came along and that, that actually solidified my, my decision to make, make the appropriate changes. And partially because she said we're not having this because I've now got three kids. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, uh, one kid comes along to yeah. That definitely the 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 new challenge in my life is is being a responsible parent, and uh, that's that means shutting the gate on old old practices. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, we really appreciate you coming in and uh, spilling the beans on this life. Now you're settled down, old man, by your fireplace in Margaret River, growing your veggies, <laughs> or not really. But oh, thanks. No worries. Thanks for coming you're in. You're welcome. And uh, and uh, we'll look forward to the next the next chapter of what is in store. Richard Bradley has been my guest here on the breakfast program. Hope you've dug it. And uh, we're going to put that up on SoundCloud, and I'll leave you some hints about how you can track that interview in the very near future. The time is 15 minutes to the hour of nine o'clock here on Radio Gallery.